intelligent, sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The better way to solve this problem would be for Democrats to support what they supported in the past and give this president funding for better barriers, which we need. So the president, one, has the authority. Yes, it is an emergency that has been shown before. And I believe at the end of the day, this wall is going to be built, not sea to shining sea, but about 200 miles. We need to secure our border. We need to fix our horribly broken legal and illegal immigration system. And so, you know, hopefully after this, uh, this impasse now is, is over in terms yeah. of funding the government, we can sit down on a bipartisan basis to start solving these problems and fix our systems. And now, Stacey Washington. Hey there. Welcome to the program. I am so glad to be with you. It's Monday. Um, I don't know if you're feeling the Monday blues, but I'm not because I feel like uh, there's a lot to be encouraged about. And when I'm talking about encouragement, I'm speaking of um, not just in the news realm, but in the everyday people type realm. So let's first, who's on the show today? You're probably thinking, who do we, who we're going to chat with? We're going to speak to Richard Lim. He's a fan favorite here on Stacy on the Ride. He often comes on the program and is just fantastic. Um, he is the creator of This American President podcast. So he's an expert on American presidents. And what's so fascinating about the things that he shares with us is that even though he's talking about men who've been dead for, you know, almost 200 years, some of them, you know, lots, lots and lots of time has passed in between when these men were in power and now, the lessons that can be learned from them stand the test of time. And so it's going to be really great to talk to him about President's Day, George Washington, and why people need to know about socialism. And I love these kinds of interviews because he's going to give us some information that you can kind of put in your toolkit. And then the next time you hear that good friend of yours or coworker or someone that you really, you care and respect for them, but they are now starting to kind of dance around with this idea of socialism, what's going to happen is you're going to have something that you can leave them with, a nugget, not an argument, not a disagreement, not something that rips the bonds of friendship, but just a bit of information that they can take home and ruminate over and research for themselves. Or maybe it kind of sinks into them and they decide, you know what? I, I, that makes sense. Um, they may not overtly come to you and say, Hey, I'm voting for Donald Trump next time. It's, we're not looking for that. It's the incremental wins that add up to a victory. It's not one day where everyone in America who's a conservative goes out and says three amazing talking points, you know, uh, in the style of the latest hot pundit and everybody's converted. It's incremental educational wins over time. Winning people with not just information, but the truth of living and the emotional aspects that are connected with it, stories. And so Richard's going to come on and talk to us about all of those things. We're also going to talk about how the media has now gone silent on Jesse Smollett's race crime hoax. And just to give you a rundown, because the story is really, okay, can I just, can I just expose? Okay, so when I first heard that some dude from Empire, a show I don't watch, um, had been attacked in Chicago by two people wearing MAGA hats where, you know, you can't even get served a cup of coffee in Chicago wearing a MAGA hat. So why would someone wear it at night in the middle of the night? Just it's an invitation to get mugged in Chicago. But anyway, um, and Chicago's not MAGA country. Southern Illinois is MAGA country. Uh, You know, if you want to if you want to find some strong Republicans and people who really care deeply for what they do and for their country and for conservative politics and, and good, strong Christians, um, Southern Illinois. 
in a state like Illinois, where they're literally, they're almost in servitude to their government with the taxation and the corruption, they still live there and they still make lives there and they still turn out fantastic kids who go on to be leaders all over the country, Southern Illinois, but not Chicago. Chicago's not MAGA country. So here's just what we know today, as of right now, one of Jesse Smollett's attorneys has quit. Uh, The Nigerian brothers that have been questioned by the police say that Jesse paid them to participate in this hoax. He directed them to buy a, a rope to put around his neck as a noose. And Nancy Pelosi has quietly deleted a tweet that had 100,000 likes where she talked about just in you know general but specific terms about race hatred in America. And every single story that the mainstream media has put forward on Jesse Smollett has tied the actions of these so-called race hatred-fueled Trump supporters, they've they've framed that as something that's happening in America because Donald Trump is a racist and he's spewing hate from the White House and enabling other racists to go out and do horrible things. So today on the show, I'm going to give you a definitive list, which you can find for yourself. I posted it on the Facebook page and it's also on my Twitter feed at Stacy on the right. You can find that list of all of the times that, that they've been able to call so far of all the times that the media has said, look at these two barbarian Trump supporters beating up this person, you know, defacing this church, anti-Semitism, yada, yada, yada. And every single time on this list, they've all been debunked as hoaxes. So the smearing of Trump supporters has been going on for over two years now with no end in sight. And so that's why it's so important to note that the mainstream media that last week was lauding this guy and, you know, doing all of his heavy lifting and giving him softball interviews. Now they've gone silent because it turns out he was getting the ax. The show was thinking of cutting him. And he thought, well, you know, if there's a race crime against me and I get a whole bunch of publicity for the show, uh, they probably won't let me go. And so he paid two Nigerians to hook him up. So we'll get to that list. We're also going to talk about CBS's Lara Logan, who's come out in this interview with a Navy SEAL. He does uh, some kind of podcast for Breitbart. And She said to him, the media is mostly liberal, and even by talking to you about these subjects, I'm committing professional suicide. So we're going to talk a little bit about that interview. Um, But right now, (laughs) so I have two awesome things for you to begin the show off with for our daily confession. And this is no accident. I was just reading, so reading through my Bible for Bible study homework, and I found this information. It's, It's so good. So let's start off with... We're talking about mercy and grace. God is merciful. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. So what are we talking about here? Well, this is one of the attributes of God. He's merciful. Mercy actually differs from grace in that grace gives what is not deserved, while mercy does not give what is deserved. So mercy is compassion in action towards sinners who have no claim or right to receive such treatment. Deserving mercy is actually a contradictory term. 
Mercy is only for sinners. Angels do not experience it because they don't need it. Mercy is God's idea. It's available to everyone, but only through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Now, God's mercy is great, tender, abundant, and everlasting. Mercy is interwoven with all other attributes of God. His loving kindness actually initiates mercy. His holiness ensures the integrity of that mercy. And his truth guarantees the reliability of that mercy. God's power assures its duration and God's faithfulness demands its constancy. You know, one of my favorites, God is not a man that he should lie. He doesn't lie. So the results of mercy are forgiveness, restoration, and praise on the part of those who experience mercy. So I have two more scriptures and they go to the attributes of God. Um, Psalm 86, 15 says, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And Psalm 103, 8 says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. So here's one of the promises of God. And the promises of God are just, they're they're interwoven all throughout the Bible. And they give us assurance that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. He actually promises us things that he's going to do, actions he's going to take the the nature of his very being. He promises us things about that in the Bible. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4 says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. That's, that's magnificent. So that is super encouraging. It's a great way to dive into this week and make sure that we're just absolutely plugged in to what God has for us and, and everything that's going on right now, which, you know, it looks a little up. It looks a little down. It looks a little bumpy, rocky. That's normal. But we can be assured that God's mercy and grace endures. The mercies are fresh every morning. And that we have access to all of that through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So uh, be encouraged about that. So let's now talk about, and I found this, I couldn't believe what was in this piece. And, you know, so full disclosure, a lot of people just by nature of the way that they were raised or in church or the way things are discussed, we kind of have a little bit of a fear of sharing the gospel with people that we know are not Christians, or if we're unsure about their salvation, we don't want to make things awkward. But there's this interesting quote from, uh, you, you guys might remember Penn and Teller. And one of the things that Penn of Penn and Teller, his name's Penn Gillette, he's half the magician duo of Penn and Teller. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? So in other words, If you know that everlasting life is possible, meaning you're a Christian, you believe that you have access to everlasting life and that you're on your way there, and you know that someone that's in your sphere of influence, whether it's a coworker or a friend or family member, that they don't have the assurance of salvation, how much do you have to hate them to tell them nothing about it, to not share it? So he takes the opposite tack. Instead of saying, me telling a friend about Jesus Christ puts us in an awkward position. He says, how could you not tell the friend? If they reject the information, then your hands are clean. But if you really care about them, if they're truly your friend and friendship implies love, respect, and admiration, how could you not tell them? 
Here's the quote from him. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. This is an atheist, by the way. If you're wondering what Penn Jillette believes, he kind of, you know, dances around. He, he believes this. He believes that from, you know, every couple of years, it's something different. But usually if you ask him directly, he says he's an atheist. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? Yet, if you look at the numbers, a significant portion of practicing Christians actually reject evangelism. And this article posits that the reason they do so is because they don't really believe in hell. Now, Almost all practicing Christians believe that their faith means being a witness about Jesus. This ranges from 95 to 97% among all generational groups, that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus, 94% or so. Almost all practicing Christians from 86% to 92% also say they know how to respond when someone asks them about their faith. A majority of every generational group believes they are gifted at sharing their faith with other people. Yet despite all of this, Almost half of all millennials aged 20 to 34 say it's wrong to share one's beliefs. And Gen Xers, boomers, and elders who are age 73 and over also have significant portions of their groups that say the same thing. It's wrong to tell other people about Jesus Christ, especially if you know that they're, you know, of a different faith walk. Like if you know they're a Muslim or if you know they're Jewish or what have you. Well, Jesus talks about hell a lot in the Bible. He actually says hell exists. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says more things, more mentions of hell than he does of heaven. Jesus uses the term Gehenna, which translates as hell a dozen times in the gospels. He uses synonyms involving fire about 20 times. Jesus describes it in vivid detail, saying it's a place of unquenchable fire, outer darkness, eternal torment. He says it is a place where the worm does not die. If you're anything like me, that ought to scare the pants off you right there because I'm like totally afraid of worms. Where people gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, a place from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones. More than anyone else in the Bible, Jesus talked about the doctrine of hell because he wants us to take it seriously. We should shudder at churches that don't know what it means to shudder about hell. We've got to start telling people for the reason that we believe and the reason for our hope, the reason why we don't have to leave everything here on the table on earth because we have an eternal existence. We'll be back with Richard Lim right after this. Keep it here. Every day in preborn centers across the country, young women in crisis find refuge. Here's Roxy, nurse director for preborn at the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Southern California. A lot of them come to us and they feel rejected, they feel alone, they're in a crisis situation, they don't know what to do, they don't know where to start. We believe that sharing the compassionate love of Jesus Christ is what really makes what we do work. Through love and compassion, Young women facing tough situations get to meet Jesus Christ and their unborn baby on ultrasound. And I got to hear and see my baby for the first time. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry. And it was certain that I was going to keep my baby forever. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and you'll receive a story and a picture of babies' lives that were spared. 
To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Or go to preborn.com. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Don't you hate it when people give you directions and they say, you just can't miss it? I'm almost always guaranteed to miss it after that statement. Well, I've learned to swallow my pride and tell people, now, would you please give me the directions slowly, step by step, or I will surely miss it. I'm so glad God is clear about the directions he gives. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. God says, I'm not trying to make this difficult. It's not out of reach for you. He's made it clear. For those who know Christ, God has given us all we need to understand what he says. Beyond that, his word is to be integrated into the whole of our lives. It says, but the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. God wants what he says to possess us, to grab us, to be a part of all we are. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. God's not playing some hide-and-seek game with us. If you want to know what he wants and expects, open the book and follow the directions. You can't miss it. Thanks, Crawford, and thank you for listening to today's Legacy Moment with Crawford Loritz, pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia, and heard on the weekly program Living a Legacy. To view an online transcript of today's thoughts by Crawford, go to livingalegacy.org. That's livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for making your home here at American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Find out about the marriage conference that's coming up in the month of June in Tupelo, Mississippi by going to urbanfamilytalk.com. We'd love to see you there and meet you. We had a great time meeting people last year, and uh, apparently the lineup of speakers is quite fantastic, and so it will be a great time uh, of fellowship and learning about God's plan for marriage and family and life uh, with American Family Radio and hosts from both sides of the network. So um, I am so excited to speak to Richard Lim. He's a creator of This American President podcast, former White House political appointee in the Bush administration, and also an author and national security commentator. Richard, thank you for joining the show today. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, I've missed being on your show. It's been It's been a while. I know. You can thank Demetrius for that. I don't know what his problem is. He knows you're a fan favorite. So you have to ping him and get yourself on the schedule because I, I definitely I think one of the best things about when you come on is how thought provoking your uh, historical commentary is. You share things that we either don't remember or never learned. And people constantly email me and tell me after you've been on that they really enjoyed you being here. So I'm glad to get to talk to you on President's Day. Well, yeah, thank you again, and also thank you to your listeners. Um, and, yeah, you know, it, it's great. It's, it's one thing I have to say, though. It's President's Day, but officially, according to uh, the legal holiday, it's Washington's birthday. And President's Day was kind of this thing that 
you know, mattress, uh, you know, salesman and car salesman created. But in actuality, it's, it is uh, Washington's birthday. Um, you know, and I, I kind of wish that it was still when I was younger, I remember them making a specific statement that it was originally George Washington's birthday. But now we celebrate George Washington and President Lincoln's birthdays on this day. And now sure. it's just President's Day, which is kind of weird sure. because um, there are definitely some presidents that I don't feel like we should be celebrating, you know, Carter, Absolutely. Obama, Clinton. I mean, there are presidents <laughs> who did not leave a good legacy behind. And so why should we right. be celebrating them like everybody gets to share the holiday? It's like me telling you, Richard, it's not just your birthday. It's my birthday, too. And you're, you'd be like, no, it's not. It's still my birthday. It's my birthday. And I'm like, yeah. well, it's mine, too. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, I mean, you know, Washington, Lincoln, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I think there are certain presidents that uh, many people admire. And then there are just a few like Andrew Johnson and James Buchanan that none of us really want to have come back, you know. Mm, exactly. Um, so yeah. let's talk a little bit about George Washington specifically. For some mm-hmm. people, they're convinced by mainstream media outlets that really we shouldn't celebrate George Washington. He was not a great man to celebrate. He owned slaves. And even though he led our nation to victory in battle and was uh, a president who left the presidency rather than continuing to rule, you know, term after term after term, he said two terms is enough for me and moved on to make room for right. other leaders to come forward. I mean, he, he's an admirable man. Obviously, the taint of slavery does hold uh, uh, sway with him, but it was sure. lawful in the day. And um, sure. I, so it, it we, we really have to look at it from the nuanced perspective of people who we would never condone slavery now, but then yeah. it was lawful. And we are a nation that literally fought brothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. And we ripped ourselves asunder to come to remain a nation without slavery. So we have a great... Sure story like that came from the the horrible things that happened but what else was right. so fantastic about george washington yeah well you, you know actually i think it's a great point that you bring up about slavery because to admire george washington is not to say that he was a perfect man um and i you know he would have been the first to tell you that if, if you know when he was nominated to be the commander of the continental army the first thing he said was uh, I, I do not believe that I'm equal to the to the command I'm honored with. And so he, he was the first person, if you read his inaugural address, he's talking about his own personal defects. And a lot of historians say that, well, this wasn't false modesty. I think he was just somebody, uh, there's this great quote, um, I believe it was by, I think it was Carl Sandburg, or one of the great writers of the 19th century. And he said, Washington was one of the few men in all of history that, that didn't get carried away by power. And, uh, you know, you look at members of Congress or even local politicians that, you know, they're, they have, you know, a certain amount of power. They're not the president, but, they, you know, they have a power over a city or a, a power of office of whatever sort, and they abuse that power. And you look at George Washington, who literally could have been a king, and he refused to take personal advantage of that. He refused to ever, uh, you know, gain um, in, in any way that was unsavory. I mean, he was somebody that people really felt could be trusted. And, you know, the slavery issue, obviously, that, that's something that as a nation, um, you know, unfortunately, our, our nation partook in that institution. And, we, you know, we should talk about it as such. 
But one thing I do want to say about George Washington is that he was the only major founding father that came to the conclusion that he should actually free a slave. And so at the end of his life, in his will, he wrote that those slaves should be freed and that, uh, you know, the, the young should be taught uh, skills and that the, the elderly should be, um, should be taken care of. And that, that doesn't mean we excuse partaking in the institution, but I think that he, he was somebody that viewed slavery as a moral issue, and he said many times, he said it was the, the, the issue of regret in his own life. When he looked at his life, he, he said that this was the unavoidable issue of regret. And so I think you see a, a man that, that felt repentant about it and, and saw it in moral terms and, and saw it as a moral evil. I, I agree with that. I think, obviously, what ends up happening is invariably people who are engaging in lawful activities during their own lifespan but have a moral objection to it but do so because mm-hmm. it's the norm of the day or rather it is profitable to them because slavery was a yeah. profitable enterprise – um, there, yeah. there's a kind of tearing of the spirit that we don't really take into account because we don't have video from back then. He wasn't doing Facebook sure. lives about how he hated to own slaves, but you know, his, his main, uh, his main source of, source of wealth was the ownership of slaves and the land and maintenance of the land that he owned. And so, we, right. you know, you, we would go back and forth. If we did have lives from back then, we'd be shocked at how, uh, some of these people struggled with it. And there were others who didn't struggle with it at all. They were mainly in the South and they weren't abolitionists mm-hmm. and they thought that it was not just a necessary evil, but that it was something they wanted to maintain, which is what prompted the Civil War and the sure. actions by uh, President Lincoln. So um, I I get, there's obviously, I think this that slavery is abhorrent and it's disgusting, but I find mm-hmm. it interesting that people would be so upset by slavery back then, Richard, more upset mm-hmm, by it than sure. they are by slavery in modern times because we still have slavery yeah. existing in the world today. Yes. And, you know, I, I think that one thing also that has to be put into context is that, um, you know, the, the people that grew up in Washington's time, they grew up in a world where, you know, the institution was firmly embedded into their lifestyles. Again, that doesn't mean it's okay. Um, but the question you know, it's for us, slavery, you know, yes, we should affirm that it's evil. But here's the question. What do you do about it? How do you how do you fix it? And in a republic, you know, today we, we have lots of problems. You know, you mentioned uh, in, in the world, you know, the, 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 the fact that slavery continues in many different forms, you know, sexual slavery, things of that nature. Uh, but lots of other problems continue. And we have difficulty finding answers to those problems, especially in a republic where it's very hard to get everyone to agree on something. And I think that that founding generation, you know, that was really the same thing. There was this, this horrible institution, um, and many people felt it was wrong. Not, not all, but many. And the question of how do you deal with that, how do you convince enough people to, to know what the right answer is, that's when the question becomes a lot more complicated. And I, I think that that's something that we have to look at the founders and say, well, you know, they had the, the, the genius to win, win a war against the most powerful nation, the British, to create a constitution and to implement a government. And I, I think it was just beyond their powers to solve that issue. And I honestly think that it was probably beyond any generation's powers to solve that issue at that point in time. So they, they hoped that the system they put in place would 
eventually uh, allow for that institution to die off. Yeah, and and a lot of their writing reflects that. Um, so yeah. I I, I want to pivot over to the issue of socialism, and this is something oh, yeah. that it gets a little annoying, right, Richard? Because if you have <laughs> any memory of anything that we learned back in in civics, starting in middle school, going on up, depending on what your order, you know, of, of informational sharing mm-hmm. was, you know, curriculum wise, at some point you mm-hmm. learned about the ills of socialism and how it led mm-hmm. to world wars and how it led to the deaths mm-hmm. of millions of people. Yet here mm-hmm. we are again with this issue. Socialism mm-hmm. is gaining popularity in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, so this has been a subject that's been always of interest to me. Um, there's a documentary, uh, it's, it's called China, A Century of Revolution, and it's a three-part documentary. And the second part in that documentary is about the, the Mao era in China, when Mao Zedong was, was in, in power. And, you know, this has always been a particular fascination with me, because I think people forget that the way we look at North Korea now, you know, very extreme form of, of communism, uh, very closed off to the world, that was what China was in the Mao era, uh, you know, up until maybe the very end. But pretty much most of the time, that was that, that time. It was very repressive, and not just repressive, not just, you know, the, the kind of natural hallmarks of, say, the Stalins and, you know, the you know like the purges and all those things, but also bizarre. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a cult of personality. You know, the, the person uh, the, who's ever the dictator becomes the god. His photo is everywhere. You know, in, in China, at one point, everyone had to do the Mao dance every day. I mean, literally every day they had to do this little dance in worship of, of the leader, Mao. This is China. This is a fifth of the world's population. And at the same time, about 30 to 45 million people were killed. I, I mean, it, it's unfathomable. I, I just, I, you know, and this wasn't that long ago. This was in the late 50s, early 60s. There was a great famine caused by Mao. 30 to 45 million people were killed. And I... I invite people, I, I, not too long ago, I invited a bunch of my friends to watch this documentary with me because if 30 or 45 million people die because of a system of government, you know, socialism, communism, we need to know about that. The information's out there. You could actually watch this documentary on YouTube if you wanted to. And one of the reasons I think it's becoming more popular is because we don't do a good job of just telling people about it. You know, again, it's all out there. You want if go on YouTube, you can watch. You know, you, it's on Wikipedia. It's on. You could read books about it. The problem is we don't talk about it, and then you see, you know, democratic socialists getting elected, and and it's it's really unbelievable that people really get fixated on this ideology. But we need to do a better job of sharing what socialism actually means. It's not some benign you know, nice little system, whatever, it's, it's deadly. It's deadly and it's evil. Well, and also, it's not necessary. I So it is deadly, it mm-hmm. is evil, and learning about it, I believe it really makes you more of an adult. I, I think mm-hmm. when I see people on video talking about how they, we just need to do socialism because Europe's doing it, or we need to do it because it would make America mm-hmm. better, they're immature. Mm-hmm. Learning about it makes them yeah. more mature. But... Yeah. We don't need socialism in America. So, so the reason people are dying mm-hmm. to get in here is not because we need to change the whole thing, because <laughs> it's bad mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely.
absolutely. I, I think that, you know, there, there's this sense, and, you know, President Harry Truman, he was a, a, a Democrat, um, but he was a, a different Democrat than what you see today. And, and in his inaugural address, he said that socialism is, it, it, essentially, it's, it's fool's gold. It's a lie. You know, people, uh, the poor of the world look at it and they say, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to be equality. It's going to be, but in reality, it's misery, just pure misery. And whatever you can, one thinks about Harry Truman, I, I think he, he arrived at a, a, a you know, a, a key insight on what socialism is. The problem, it's an especially insidious type of ideology because it's attractive to people. You know, there's, you know, thankfully, we've looked at, uh, you know, uh, different ideologies like Nazism and, and uh, you know, and we've said, oh, well, that's wrong. And, 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 you know, thankfully. But then with socialism, there's still this kind of, eh, you know, it, it, it might work this time. No, it won't work this time. It's, it's at war with human nature. It's at war with, with religion. You know, I mean, communism, is, you know, specifically outlaws God. It, it is a system that is at war with with God and so and and with human nature and so uh, you know I think that as somebody that loves history and loves to share it I I personally feel an obligation to say look the information's out there let's let's spend a little time and look look at it you know I, I have friends that you know if they're honest with themselves they would probably have to say that you know I mean I'm look I'm from California I went to public school I got a lot of liberal friends here. I mean, you know, I got a lot of conservative friends here, but unfortunately, there are a lot of people that I think, if they're honest with themselves, they do kind of yearn for this kind of <laughs> the, the false promises of socialism, and it's scary. It is. It's like so. The other, I, I have so many things I could ask you, but I see it's two thirty-eight. I'm going to give you the last word on this. I guess my my. So, what is the most important thing anyone could do? Like any regular person who you overhear a coworker, mm -hmm. or they come to you and they say. You know, socialism isn't really that bad. I don't know what you Trump supporters are upset about. You got like mm -hmm. 15 seconds. What do they say? Oh, boy. Well, you know, what I would say is that I, I think that it, it's hard to convince somebody just by arguing with them. But if you just show them the evidence, you know, I, I some of my friends I invited and I said, hey, I, I, this is a Chinese history documentary. And, you know, people are interested in that kind of stuff. I live in the Washington area, so we're all nerds here. They'll watch it. And I didn't have to tell them socialism is terrible. All they had to do was watch it. And they learned, oh, my God, this is bad. You know, and I, yeah. I feel a little foolish for thinking that this is good. And I, I think that's a good way that we can help convince people of it instead of kind of arguing them through. Perfect. Show them the evidence. Thank you so yeah. much, Richard Lim, for joining and for that fantastic information. We will have you back Thank again you. soon. Um, have a great week. We'll be back with more right after this. Stay there. What does it take to be a sports success and a team player? Here's Pro Football Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. Walter Payton once ran for 275 yards in a single game, and he did it while running a 102-degree fever. That's the kind of player Walter was. Unstoppable. But his most enduring legacy is the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award given annually to a player for outstanding humanitarian and charity work. The award was named for him in 1999, the year he died of a rare liver disease. Philippians 2.15 says we should live our lives so that you may become blameless and pure. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. 
few shine brighter than Hall of Famer Walter Payton. He was an uncommon athlete with a remarkable legacy. Tony Dungy, best-selling author of Quiet Strength and the Uncommon Book Series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet, they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. And I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with 8 Days of Hope. Donald Trump's America. Last Friday's national emergency declaration by the president is opening the door to a fight among the legislative and executive branches it may take the judicial branch to solve. Democrats like New Jersey House member Jeff Van Drew believe this is not the best use of this power. He says on Fox's Sunday Morning Futures. I'm not a real strong partisan and I believe in bipartisanship. In this case, I think the president has overreached. But House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California said also on Fox this is well within the president's power. It is an emergency that has been shown before, and I believe at the end of the day, this wall is going to be built, not sea to shining sea, but about 200 miles. But not all Republicans are on board. Texas Republican House member Will Hurd said on CBS Face the Nation that this should not be how it works. My concern is our government wasn't designed to operate by national emergency. The president can use a veto if Congress says no to the declaration. Grinnell Scott, Fox News. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'll tell you this. The drugs had gotten so bad in my six and a half years working in southern Arizona that literally they had to provide every police officer on the department with Narcan. Which is, a, which is something that you use on a person as they're overdosing on heroin or a downer. You give it to them and it brings them back to life. Every police officer had to wear that. Fentanyl had to have that on them at, at all times. Fentanyl became so bad in Southern Arizona that every single police officer, when we test drugs, we have to be outfitted with a full bodysuit with a mask on because we didn't know if there could be fentanyl contained in drugs that we test, normal drugs that we normally test. And if it get onto your skin or you inhale it, you can die. It is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. And they don't want to talk about that. It's not only a threat to the community, but it's a threat to law enforcement. What comes with drugs is crime, gangs, guns, murder. Torture, all of these things are apparent in southern Arizona and is moving all across the country. Welcome back to the program. That was um, actually, I think I was going to do that in second hour, but former police officer Brandon Tatum on border crisis. And he, he, so he actually worked in this industry. He worked in protecting Americans from drug lords and gangs and criminals and all that. 
And when he is talking about it, you can hear the passion in his voice, why he's so passionate about not only that we need a wall, but that we need the, so the wall enables us to take what are really finite resources and put them in areas where they're more effectively used. So the wall means you don't need actual border patrol agents in areas where there's no wall. The wall enables us to move those resources to areas where they could perform greater levels of drug interdiction. Democrats are really fond of saying how we get most of our drugs through lawful entry points. Not only is that a lie, but it also is a deflection away from the fact that the drugs that do come through the legal entry points wouldn't be able to come through if we had more Border Patrol agents there with dogs, drug-sniffing dogs, more of them able to screen every single vehicle that passes through every single truck, if we had better, uh, better use of the resources. So the, the wall is not only not medieval, it makes more sense than any other solution that's being offered, and it's a permanent one. Um, one of the things that people keep asking me about is E-Verify, and if you read Ann Coulter's books, she talks about how E-Verify is a fantastic system. But the people who gutted E-Verify after Reagan said, we're going to use it, we're going to give amnesty to these people and then do E-Verify, the people who gutted it were Republicans. They didn't want these huge fines against businesses who were hiring illegal aliens because they didn't want to stop the practice. So when you got people on your side who are wearing your team jersey but are acting like they're on the other team or they're on their own team, you need solutions that are permanent. And if medieval is the term we're going to use, isn't there something else that people use the term medieval for? It means extreme. So medieval can mean actual, you know, the historical time period. It can refer to something that's old or antiquated or outdated. But medieval can also refer to options that are extreme, extraordinary, relentless, merciless, completely all-encompassing. If someone says they're going to get medieval on you, they're not saying they're going to be gentle. They're saying they're going to go old school and you're going to experience things that you maybe don't want to experience because they're medieval in nature and we are a modern type of a people. So uh, I want to share with you, call lines are open, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. And I talked to you a little bit about the um, the interview that Laura Logan did and she was speaking to Navy SEAL Mike Ritland about a variety of topics on his Mic Drop podcast, and they were discussing mainly how she became a journalist. Why did she decide to do that? And she told an interesting story of being eight years old, and her mo- her mom was coming to pick her up from school. She's not she's not a, she's American now, but she you know from she's an immigrant. And the teacher said, "Hey, when when your mom gets here to pick you up, make sure and let me know because so, I have something I want to tell her." And so she runs out to the car to get picked up by her, mom, by her mom, and the teacher comes out with her. And the teacher tells her mom, "Look, if your daughter doesn't become a writer, it's going to be a travesty against humanity because this child is a writer. She's she's got the gift. She should cultivate it, and she should get an education that would allow her to do that for a living." And she went on to make a joke about herself and say, you know, I I think my colleagues at CBS would say there are other writers out there who are better than me and that I'm maybe not God's gift to journalism as my teacher thought I would be. But I do believe that that kind of set me on the path. And then it happened to her again in high school where someone uh, who was a teacher said to her, um, they actually came, it was teachers who were trying to get kids interested in literature and journalism specifically. And they had some people come in to speak like, like, you know, they always have, uh, people from outside of the school come in and they're professionals and they speak to the high schoolers. 
And they came in and they said, you know, if you want to know more about how newsrooms work, you can come and you can take a tour of the newsroom and you can, you know, we'll give it to you. And so she did that. And that was when it was cemented in her mind that this was something real she was going to do. But then after all of that wonder, I mean, that, that's like really interesting, interesting perspective to have about her. But then you look at, um, you know, our media apparatus as it is now. Gone are the idealistic kind of glory days of, you know, these intrepid reporters rooting out stories and following a story wherever it might lead. Now we have journalists who literally, if a story is not leading to something bad about Donald Trump, they're not interested in hearing it. They don't want to read it. They're not interested in, in investigating it. If it does lead to something bad about Donald Trump, but it's not bad enough, they're willing to embellish it. They're willing to add to it. They're willing to make it into something um, that smears people. And that that can't be something that is good for America. It can't be something that's good for the practice of journalism and the maintaining the trust of the American people. So I want to give you a quote from her. She talked about um, that everywhere, everywhere journalism is practice, the media are mostly liberal, not just in the United States. She also showed that registration among journalists presents that the media is out of balance. And she came up with a metaphor to explain how she believes the press is tinged by sameness of opinion. And this is really fascinating. So let me, let me share what she, what she said. She said, visually, anyone who's ever been to Israel and been to the Wailing Wall has seen that the women have this tiny little spot in the front of the wall to pray and the rest of the wall is for the men. And to me, that's a great representation of the American media is that in this tiny little corner where the women pray, you've got Breitbart and Fox News and a few others, One America News Now, et cetera. And from there on, you have CBS, ABC, NBC, Huffington Post, Politico, whatever, right? All of them. And that's the problem for me because even if it was reversed, if it was vastly mostly on the right, that would also be a problem for me. My experience has been that the more opinions you have, the more ways that you look at everything in life. And I think it bites us on our side as well. I, I talked a little bit about the backlash that I had on my Facebook page. Uh, you know, at the, it was last week, it was the week before because I posted a story about how there's multiple measles outbreaks across the country. And I said, I didn't say, hi, I'm Dr. Stacy, and you will go get vaccinated. I said, you know, you should probably, I didn't, I didn't use the word probably. I said, go check out your, make sure your kids are vaccinated make sure your MMR vaccine is up to date because as adults, what we often forget with the MMR vaccine, if you don't see your uh, primary care physician, internist, you know, whatever you call your doctor, if you don't go in for yearly checkups as an adult, then you're not aware that you, as an adult, need one booster for the MMR vaccine. Now, I did not think this was controversial. I posted this because I was concerned that adults who aren't affiliated with the military wouldn't have had the their doctor tell them that they needed to do that. And it didn't occur to me that there was a huge movement out there. I wasn't aware that American Family Radio had made a or American Family Association had made a statement about laws giving parental uh, opt out in in uh, Mississippi. I wasn't aware of any of that. I posted it, you know, put my phone down. I cooked. I cleaned. I did some BSF homework, played with the dog, watched some mindless television and picked my phone up later to see that there was a firestorm brewing on my page angry people calling me everything but a child of God. You're not a Christian, yada, yada, yada. Now, if you were listening last, the, the, not last Friday, but the Friday before, I apologized on air because my reaction was to say, it's my page, it's my opinion, and I'll post what I want. 
which is the truth, but it wasn't very nice of me to post that. Well, that prompted leaders in the, uh, you know, vaccine integrity movement or whatever it's called. I call them anti-vaxxers, um, but they said they're not anti-vaxxers because their kids are vaccinated. Again, an issue that I'm, I'm not into telling people that they have to be vaccinated or that you should not be vaccinated. I come from a military background. I'm a fourth generation military person. So that means as far as I know, every person in my family, including my extended family, has been vaccinated for everything. And the reason I say that is because all of all of them are affiliated somehow with the military, some family member who's in the military. And if you're an active duty, you don't go to your commander when he says everyone line up for the flu shot, the the people from the uh, dispensary are here to give everybody their flu shot. You don't walk up and say, I'm not taking the flu shot today. You're a military asset. You're getting the flu shot unless you're sick. Then you will be rescheduled for people who are sick during the administration and you will get it then. Unless you have a doctor's note saying you're not getting it, you're getting it. As well as the vaccinations, you don't simply show up to the military recruiter's office and say, I've never been vaccinated and expect to get into the U.S. military. So my perspective on it has been one of what vaccine is scheduled, I get it and I move on. And I've never had a problem, nor has any other person in my family, nor has anyone that I have known during my entire childhood because I was born into the military as a brat because my dad was already on active duty when I was born. And my mom, I actually asked her about it. We've never known anyone to have a adverse reaction from a vaccine. So that's where I'm coming from. So I had no idea that I had the power to make people do things by simply posting it on Facebook, but the backlash was immediate. People started posting negative reviews on my page. People started direct messaging me. Um, I had people threaten me. I had people tag other hosts on this network as if those hosts could make me take back or retract my opinion, which I'm happy to say this is not that kind of a workplace. And saying all of that to say that on the right, we have some echo chambers as well. We have some areas in which if you say something and you don't, you don't even have to, I was not looking to pick a fight. This was not an instance where I said, who can I rile up today? I'm having a bad day. I want to kick my dog and I'm going to go on Facebook and I'm going to post something and I want every Christian in Christendom to come and attack me so I can attack them back. Are you kidding me? Do you think I have time for that kind of stuff? I don't. And I'm not particularly interested in being at war with everybody, especially people who I consider us to be, you know, of similar belief backgrounds. And so the echo chamber is dangerous from both directions. And the statement that she's made here, that even though she's right-leaning, she would have a problem with it if the only news out there was Fox and, and Breitbart and One American News, et cetera, et cetera. It's an accurate statement to make because when we only listen to opinions that agree with our own, we demonize the other side to the point that a person who we're agreeing with each other on 90% of everything, I had... Act people with cross symbols in their avatar, people who have the word Christian in their little bio that they share on online social media were emailing me and, and sending stuff to me. And I, it looked just like when the liberals get mad when I say, you know, it, being black is not the most important aspect of who I am. You hate yourself and you hate your kids and you hate your ancestors. You hate this. You hate that. You call yourself black. It was the same type of stuff, only it was surrounding the fact that how can I be pro-life and how can I be a Christian and support people getting vaccinated? Well, I don't actually support or unsupport any of that. I have been vaccinated. My kids, my husband, everybody in my family has. And that's my perspective that I'm coming from. It is now something that, and oh, 
And it was also, you're uninformed. You don't know anything about this subject, which I do. I've read quite a bit of literature because quite a few people who actually call themselves anti-vaxxers have sent it to me in the almost 10 years that I've been doing this. I was also accused of being thin-skinned, which that has come to me so many times. If I was thin-skinned, I wouldn't be doing this job because I've been called every curse word there is. I've had legitimate, actual threats leveled against me and my family, and we've done investigations into people, and they've been visited by law enforcement in this state and in other states. If I was thin-skinned, this would not be where I find myself every day from 2 to 4 p.m. So the reason I'm sharing all of this, especially this part about you know, you got Laura Logan saying she's committing professional suicide. That should never be the case when sharing our opinions. And it should never be the case, especially for people who call themselves Christians, that the first place that we go to when someone disagrees with us is to attack them and go after their personal views and their family. That's not what Jesus Christ did. It's not what we're called to do. But rather than condemning that, because I also had a negative reaction to the attacks, it, they were all out personal attacks on me, and they were still there on the Facebook page for people to look at. I absolutely understand when people get triggered and get upset and they want to lash out. But is that going to get us anywhere? I don't know if you're kind of glomming onto this, but I haven't changed my mind. I think it was very prudent of me to tell people to make sure that they have their MMR vaccine up to date with states experiencing explosions of measles outbreaks. I never said I was a doctor. I never will say that because I'm not a doctor and I'm not going to be. And I'm not interested in being a doctor. But it is okay for me to suggest that people check their vaccine level if they want to. And if they don't want to, it's perfectly fine for them to keep scrolling and not attack me personally and then complain later when I've blocked them. Just speaking from the center of logic. Update, I'm going to be back at the White House later on this week. I'll be doing some live streams from there. But right now, if you're leaving us, God bless from the heartland. Thank you for making your home here at American Family Radio. If you're sticking around, I'll be back after these messages.